Hi everyone and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast. This is our fifth in a series of podcasts about coronavirus as it's unfolding and I wanted to remind existing listeners and inform new listeners that this is a show on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network uh, and they exist to bring together people from academia, industry and public health around all things behavioural science. Check out their website at www.bsphn.org.uk. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, please check out our back catalogue, including this month's regular show with Sam Seltzer, who is a behavioural consultant and creator of the awesome Habit Weekly newsletter. I've also just been interviewed on one of my favourite behavioural science podcasts, which is called Behavioural Grooves. So check that out at behavioralgrooves.com or search on your podcast app to listen to that show. And I really love the way Tim and Kurt's show is put together. And I think it's really well worth a listen if you're into the behavioural sciences. So go and check that out. Please remember that if you want to hear other people interviewed or you have questions that you'd like to put to us, you can get hold of me on Twitter at Stu underscore King underscore HH on LinkedIn or email me at Stuart King at busybodies.co.uk. I'd love to hear more comments and questions from you, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. Just to let you know, we've continued to have technical issues in getting both Jim and Susan on using the normal podcasting software. So we've used Zoom, which everyone's using at the moment for conference calls, and whilst the the call quality is slightly lower than the podcasting technology it's more important to us to have both susan and jim on at the same time because we feel like there's a lot we covered in the show the content was a lot richer for that so apologies about the slight reduction in quality and sound but hopefully you enjoy the show So I'm here again with Professor Jim McManus, who is the Director of Public Health at Hertfordshire County Council, and Professor Susan Mickey, who is the Director of the Centre for Behaviour Change at University College London. And before we started, I just wanted to say thank you to both of you for the work you've done during this crisis, because I know Jim has been working tirelessly to support people within the County Council and the people within his county with their response, as well as his roles within the BSPHN and as the uh, Vice Chair of the Association of the Directors of Public Health. And Susan's been on all of the major news networks over the last few weeks, publishing papers and advising SAGE to ensure people have behaviourally informed information about the situation we find ourselves in. So I just wanted to start by saying thank you to, to you both for all that you're doing. Um, and then I thought we'd just get going with the first question because it's just been announced today that, so, so this is being recorded on the 14th of April, it's just been announced that the lockdown is going to be extended in the UK um, for a further three weeks. So what I wanted to ask you is what about this next period of lockdown is going to be more challenging than the previous three weeks? I'm not surprised by this. Um, it seems to me that it's probably about the only thing government could do, given that we're clearly not um, demonstrably through the peak yet. And the social distancing measures have been working. I think it will have a number of impacts on people. I think some people will be impatient um, itching to get back to work or, or back out. I think some people will find it um, increases their isolation and loneliness. Others will get depressed. Some people will find it's much more stressful. Uh, so I think this will have an impact on people's resilience but there will be others who will just say okay that's fine we can handle this and it, again it emphasizes the most important thing in compliance with this is a having the right mindset and b, also being able to get the things you need so the people who are poorest will fare worst in this i think mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I agree with um, Jim. There's no alternative than do this for another three weeks. And I wouldn't be surprised if we have a further time after that. I think it's really helpful for people to have a time limit on it because then people can prepare themselves for it. It's definitely going to be three weeks. But we know from the evidence that when you get into this amount of time, um, the problems that um, happen even within the first couple of weeks get worse. So things like boredom and frustration um, particularly, uh, also um, tension, uh, in relationships and conflict, um, especially in living in um, accommodation where people are uh, overcrowded. Um, and also um, there's a tendency to declining adherence uh, to government guidance. I have to say, people have been absolutely amazing so far, I think generally mm-hmm. in terms of adhering to uh, what is very challenging um, situation. And I think it's really worth celebrating that. I think there's often a lot of focus on the few people who go off and have a barbecue or whatever. But we know from the evidence that we're talking about one to 2% of the population. Um, And so I think that the media and also politicians focusing on that is unhelpful. Um, Having said that, I think that uh, the government really needs to think about um, new ways of helping people to stay at home and carry on abiding by the guidance. I think, um, you know, we need some new initiatives so people really feel that they're being listened to and looked after. Um, We know that the group who who seem to be finding it most difficult are young men, 18 to 24 year olds. I think there could be um, some, you know, live streaming of uh, concerts and films that might appeal to that group um, at home that the government could sponsor, for example. Um, And I think other things coming into the home in terms of games for children or um, things for people to do, um, particular television slots could be tailored. You know, there could be Mm. a half hour every day uh, for the elderly in terms of um, how they're coping day to day with it. Um, And the other thing is, I think, thinking about the time we do get out every day and making sure that people can really have good quality time when we um, get out. Uh, So one thing that um, I think was quite misguided, actually, um, Matt Hancock a a week or so said, I think after that first weekend when after that long, wet winter, there'd been glorious sunshine and and people going out. And um, what wasn't really looking at the data and understanding what the nature of the problem was and assuming it was motivation. And so coming back saying, well, you know, that's going to happen. We're going to lock up all the parks you know, absolutely mm. the wrong response because it, you know, we know from the data that overwhelming majority of people want to adhere. The problem was everybody's going out to the same parks yeah. and, and therefore it's crowded. So don't blame people, understand people and enable people. And, you know, as a result of that problem, what I've been saying is do the opposite, open up all the green spaces we've got. I mean, in London, we've yeah. got 45,000 acres of golf courses. There's all the school playing fields um, that could be opened up. So I think that's the approach, you know. Un- yeah. So understand the problem before you jump in with solutions. And in this case, thinking of the combi model, it wasn't motivation. It was opportunity that there's a main constraint to people adhering to the guidance, or mm. the social distancing guidance. 
And you had and you had some um, a lot of media coverage of police kicking over barbecues and and sort of looking at people in park sunbathing. But that was the you know that the vast majority of people, as you say, were complying with the guidance. Even though I think there was a slight, it's particularly in in parks, and there was a slight sort of. Um, Slight confusion around what that guidance meant. So we're saying go out and be active, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're giving it over to people to be sensible about how they do that. And I and I read something that you I don't know where I read it now, probably on Twitter, I think, but about the, you know, the distance you have to be away from someone if you're walking, running, or, or cycling. And I mean, none of that is obviously really that easy for people to get hold of that information how yeah. scientifically valid all of that, where, where that's come from. Where did yeah. that come from, Susan? That, that was an interesting um, paper. Um, I'm part of a network organised by the Science Media Centre, which is a fantastic organisation, which is there um, in order to um, produce good scientific commentary on the whole range of issues that journalists are asking. So mm-hmm. every day uh, we're sent lists of questions that journalists are asking or Uh, media slots they want us to be on or um, any new papers where they want commentary on it and so this was this was a paper that I got through that source and it was it was done um, by uh, I think primarily sort of engineers in laboratory situations and what they were doing was looking to see how far the virus traveled um, in different at different sort of speeds and Mm. what they were concluding was that um, it was the when you're in the um, slipstream of the person in front of you. So actually walking a metre side by side in a park is, is not a problem. But actually, if you're in the slipstream of somebody and they happen to cough or sneeze, you need to be, they, they estimated seven metres mm. behind. And if you were behind a runner, I think it was something like 10 metres. And if you were um, behind a really fast runner or a really fast cyclist, it was something like 20 metres. So you know, it, interesting, and a lot of the data that's coming out now is um, there's always a tension between getting it out really quickly so it can be used and going through the peer review system. Yeah. So I'm not sure if that had been peer reviewed or not. But anyway, it's plausible. It makes sense. So I think the yeah. thing to take away from that, and it's interesting about human behaviour, you know, it's it's walk beside, not behind people, basically. And also, what's the harm? You know, it, it, be, be that far away. That's just good, sensible advice. If it happens not to be true, totally. Uh, all right, it hasn't been peer-reviewed, but it's still good, sensible advice to make sure you, you've got some sort of rule of thumb, some guide to use. As, as you know, If you're going out and being active, just use that as a guide. I think when people are given clear information, it comes back to sort of, you know, east, you know, making it easy, you know, attractive. Just, just having it be really clear for people is a, is a fundamental part. I think people, like you say, they want to be compliant. So if we give them information like that, that's 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 at least plausible and sensible, then then they'll probably follow it. And another um, thing that's happened, I don't know if it's happened in Jim's part of the world, mm-hmm. but um, near us, um, on the um, walkways going into the parks, there are um, in yellow lines being painted at two meters length, with mm-hmm. a person each side of it so that people can see what two metres actually looks like. And I think that's a really helpful um, thing to do. Yeah, that is good. I think you need to articulate the system that you're dealing with here, um, uh, because the the people who will be enforcing this will be local authority, environmental health or park rangers or countryside management services or parks and recreation departments. So where I am in Hertfordshire, there's 11 different organisations trying to work on these restrictions. Um, and I, I don't think we've done a very good job as a, as a country 
of making clear some of the things we could do. So how could we do that better? Well, the first thing is we could articulate what behaviours we expect of different bits of the population, say by age, as Susan was doing for TV and video and film, and actually having some of our broadcasters work on that. The second thing is we could try and frame it in such a way that we can support local authorities in framing the positive behaviours. So, yeah, some of our parks have put up those two-metre distance signs. Others have put signs in parks um, all the way through. Some have actually taped off or removed um, seats, uh, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, One or two have um, closed off car parks but left the the parks open so people can walk and cycle through um, because they've had a particular set of issues about people going and having barbecues or parking and staying overnight and fishing. So the encourage the issue of encouraging local organi- local councils particularly about what they can do to help people take these um, behaviours seriously and easily and positively, uh, I think has been a bit kind of missed out of the system and missed out, of, I think, of some of the kind of criticism and some of the coverage. The other thing for me would be how do we um, stop framing this as a lockdown um, and start framing this as, again, protecting ourselves and others by uh, enforcing social distancing for ourselves and each other. The police will tell you that most policing in this country, the only reason these things are working is because we are abiding by them. And as Susan said earlier, the evidence, particularly if you look at Google Analytics, is most people are abiding by these restrictions. The issue is how we get people to own them over the the second period of um, restrictions that the government announced, uh, perhaps even over a third period. But this next period will take us up to the May bank holiday, um, and that will be a particular issue for people who may want to get out and about or who may even just want to visit a shop and buy gardening equipment. So I was in a supermarket the other day, and the security person outside was saying, only buy essential items. And I said, well, why are you selling rack upon rack of bedding plants? I wasn't yeah. going to buy bedding plants, but I, I passed nine racks of bedding plants. So why are, you, why are you giving such mixed messages? And it is about thinking. Uh, I, and I've found locally the combi model has actually helped when we've been discussing things like that. And the same with crematoria, actually, because we have issues about how many people can come to a funeral. Um, so rather than just place blanket restrictions on, I think the government's done a good thing of saying, work out how many people you can accommodate with proper social distancing uh, and do it that way. Um, Jim, that's a good point. I want, I want, I want to go back to this, the shopping scenario because I had a discussion with someone um, about this the other day where they were going to a supermarket to buy essential items, but there were loads, obviously there's loads of stuff else in the supermarket. And they, they said they didn't buy any of the other stuff. I think it was some clothes or something. They said they didn't buy any of that because that wasn't essential. And I, was sort of, I wasn't sure of the rules myself here because I was thinking, well, you're in the supermarket anyway going for your your weekly, I think they do it weekly, weekly shop. Uh, you're doing it responsibly. And if you happen to need to pick up some clothes while you're there, is that something 
Is that something that people should be doing or should they just be making an attempt not to do anything other than the essentials? It seems like since you're there, you could do that, but you shouldn't go just for that. Exactly. I mean, I think that what's really important is the government doesn't just say what we should be doing, but why we should be doing. Explain the principles underlying the guidance. So the reason for only going to get essential provisions is to minimise the amount of time that you're likely to be in contact with other people, because that's what will transmit the virus. Um, So, of course, if you're in a shop and there happens to be some clothes there that you want, it makes no difference whether or not you buy it. The point is just to minimise the number of times you go out. But I think the government could do so much better job explaining to people why these things are being done. The same with the benches. I mean, this just looks punitive to me. And actually, I think it's quite ageist because, um, thank goodness, where I live near Hampstead Heath, the the benches haven't been um, taped over. Um, And the people who are mainly using it are elderly people, you know, who go for a walk, but they do want to sit down midway. And there's nobody abusing it, like a whole crowd of people (laughs) cramming onto one bench. It's just not happening. And I think it gives a really poor message that you know we don't we don't trust you we're treating you like children by taping up these benches I think if there's a bench problem then explain what the problem is and get the community involved in thinking what are the options for how we deal with the bench problem I don't think actually there is even a bench problem but it's a very good example um, yeah I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think the, the challenge is it's a lot easier said than done. Um, if you're working in a parks department where half your workforce is off sick with COVID and, and you haven't you haven't got community engagement, I think I, I think the and actually nobody's articulated what the gold standard is. And if your approach is to try and enforce benches, then it's a knee jerk reaction to kind of tape off the benches whereas if your approach is about engage the community or even even put up a sign saying please respect that this bench is for older people to have rest only you you'd get a much better response and i think a few places are doing that interestingly um in the last couple of days we had a legal challenge by a, a, a two families of children with autism and spectrum disorder who, who started a judicial review action against the government's regulations because the restrictions on exercise actually disproportionately impacted on families with auti- with disabled children because mm, sometimes they need to yeah. three times a day. And the government listened and um, actually said, you know, uh, has amended the guidance to say you can leave your home um, for medical need uh, and actually, this could include where individuals with learning disabilities or autism need specific exercise in an open space two or three times a day. Now, that creates a challenge for the police if they're trying to enforce this, you know, isn't intelligent, but it actually creates flexibility as we go through this. You're left with the, the, with the question of if all of these restrictions were designed by behavioural scientists, would we have done a better job? than government just imposing them? And I think the answer is probably not in the fact that we've been here three weeks. The issue now, I think, is for us to find creative ways of living them and living them positively. Um, So, you know, Susan's comment about the benches. You're in a shop and you're buying stuff. 
Um, if they don't want you to buy anything other than absolute essentials that are in the shop anyway, why are the supermarkets discounting stuff? Yeah. Or selling it at all. It's on sale. Yeah, I mean you're not going to have the you're not going to have the police looking into your shopping bag. That would be uh, yeah. a needless, and I don't think most police are interested anyway. I think this is where we need to think about systems, don't we? And think about whose behaviour, um, because here we're talking about um, shopkeepers' behaviour. We're not talking about um, citizens' behaviour. Um, so I think that's where um, the kind of regulation needs to happen. And I think you know the selling of um, Bedding plants is particularly insensitive, uh, given the fact that the restrictions are so much more difficult for people who are crowded into flats with no outdoor space than people with roomy houses and gorgeous big gardens uh, where they can go out and make them even more gorgeous by buying bedding plants. So I do think these kind of sensitivities need to be thought about. Yeah, and I think one of the things, um, going back to the shopping thing, is it's not, I don't think it is, people are concerned about the police checking their bags as they come out, although some people might be. I think it's that actually people are being socially aware of the fact that other people might be judging them for picking up non-essential items, Um, which is one of the points I wanted to make, actually, is, is that people have really quickly adopted this this notion of of what's I don't like calling it social distancing. I'm calling it physical distancing. I like it better. But this physical distancing notion, and when when people are quickly enraged now when they see other people who aren't following those, and so I think in the in the three weeks it's been going on, people have adopted it really quickly. My my question is, how will it, how will that change over the next three weeks and beyond? In terms of will people get some level of behavioural fatigue, or you know, this is something that's coming up quite a lot. How will people deal with it? We, we sort of alluded to keeping, uh, making it more attractive to be at home, but but how will they deal with the behavioural fatigue of, of it, it seeming a bit never-ending in the sense that it's, it's another three weeks, but what if it carries on? Um, just, I'm going to pick you up on that phrase, behavioural fatigue, it should never have been used. I see um, it everywhere though. I know. And, what, do, and, what's, what does it mean, Susan? Talk us through okay. that because it's important. So what, it, it, what happened, it never came from the um, Behavioural Scientific Advisory Group. Um, we were looking at the evidence, which was showing a range of different psychological issues that happen um, in quarantine situations and have been mm-hmm. found to happen in whatever country and area you look at it. We've rehearsed it before, you know, boredom, um, resentment, anger, frustration, um, and poor adherence over time. And um, I don't know where it came from, whether it's the Behavioural Insights team or whether it's Chris Whitty, but somebody came out with this phrase. And um, I think that they were mashing all these different things together to just put a summary label on it. Um, But, you know, all of these concepts are very different concepts. You know, depression is very different than um, anger. And they have their own measures and their own place in theoretical understanding of how they influence behaviour and therefore what kind of interventions are needed um, to change the situation. So wrapping it all up into one term saying behavioural fatigue is really unhelpful. It's like we might wrap up all sorts of different um, uh, painkilling drugs that actually have very different mechanisms Mm. um, such as paracetamol and you know ibuprofen say and just call it 
painkillers and we never look at the difference between them. So I think we need to, if we're talking about the difficulties of carrying on adhering, um, which is a behaviour, then let's talk about that. If we're talking about some of these emotional problems increasing, let's talk about that. So I think we should just, you know, as behavioural scientists, be very clear about the language we use and the concepts we're referring to. No, I'm really glad you picked yeah, that up. Yeah, I think that... That's important. That does make... Um, I, I think that does make sense to me. I think there's, there's several things we need to do. Nobody, as far as I can see, in this epidemic so far has sat down and specified the behaviours we want from people in the level of detail that makes it really easy for people to perform those behaviours consistently and well. Um, Some things have been well defined, and that's not a criticism of anybody. It's just a case of actually the system generates the behaviours that the system allows people to do to perform. So if you think it's all right to sit in your front garden and the, and somebody comes along and tells you it isn't, then you're going to get conflict and you're going to get that on the news. So what we need is a very simple statement of what basic behaviours we need people to do and to communicate that well. And I have to say, I don't think the media have helped. Um, uh, and then what we need on top of that is a list of, right, well, here are some types of behaviours that will happen because of stress and whatever. And as Susan says, they're not fatigued. They are a variety of different behaviours driven by a range of different etiological factors. So if someone gets depression or stress, one or two people may well develop agoraphobia as a result of this. Um, what happens if you're an intensive care nurse who's had a really, really, really stressful night with several patients dying and you just want to be in amongst a bunch of trees to sit and be quiet and take it in so the the we i think need to build kind of flexibility and sense and reason into this on all sides in order to get through it um knee-jerk blanket banning stuff um, is it has a place but it but it doesn't work as well as that kind of person-centred discretion approach that, you know, some places seem to be applying very well. Yeah, I'm glad that we got to talk about that, actually, because I think that's something that a lot of people have heard and used. And my question I'd I'd actually written down today was, we've heard a lot about behavioural fatigue. Can you explain it a little bit for us? So I'm I'm glad you picked that up, Susan. And I think it's a really interesting point to have broken that down into these are behaviours and these are emotions that end up, you know, manifesting... In, in lots of different ways i don't think it's our place now to talk about it because it could that's a big topic that we could go on about for probably for quite some time but is there any way you know of that, that there are uh, is a good description of the distinction between them and, and support around those do, do you have anywhere that you can think of that, does that? well there are there are two systematic uh, reviews that have been published i think the first one which was looking at the kind of psychological effects of um quarantine uh, Brooks was the first author published in The Lancet. And then there was another one subsequently, I think, about maybe interventions to mitigate these. Um, and that was Webster was the first author, and that's in public health. So those two are um, you know, evidence syntheses of, of what we've known to date. So they're both very helpful. Great. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, 
So I, I, Jim, I wanted to, to ask you a question about your experience at the moment, because I know you're, you're sort of neck deep in, in all of the stuff around um, COVID from Hertfordshire's perspective and in your other roles. Um, so what are, the, what are the things that are top of mind for you and for your colleagues and for your county as well um, that just sort of spring to mind as being the most important things that you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis? So at the time of writing, we've got about... 1,300 cases, we've got a large number of outbreaks in care homes. Um, We have had a number of people die, as have many other places. We have an awful lot of people who are working flat out, um, and uh, they are working on everything from uh, caring for vulnerable people to dignified disposal of the dead to keeping essential services going. So, um, and, uh, you know, we might have had Easter, but I had meetings on both Good Friday and Easter Monday. Um, so I guess there's probably several issues uppermost in my mind at the minute. The first would be sustaining the rhythm and the motivation and the workforce while a number of people are going off ill and more and more work is getting spread around. Now, we have got lots of prioritisation matrices about that, but um, people are working on their own from home and staff may get isolated and motivated, so there is a real issue about the kind of psychological well-being and encouragement of our staff, particularly some who will get, will get PTSD from um, caring for a succession of people who died. Uh, I guess the next thing will be... Um, how do we uh, articulate a way out of this? So w- when are we going to recover some sense of normality? What will that normality look like? You know, even things like, will I get paid? Will I have a job? Um, how do I manage working from home when I've got uh, three kids uh, around my ankles? Um, and a whole range of other things, as well as anxieties about the, their own health. So the... The vulnerability factors, if you like, are heavy, significant and ever-present, and I've only just scratched the surface of them. So there's a whole range of issues. I've got a team of about 80, but I also have 500 clinicians that I commission. 270 of them have just gone into frontline work on COVID. How do I care for them? Um, So there's a range of things. There's also issues about, you know, the, the bereavement arrangements, the funeral arrangements, w- will cause great pain to people and are and is causing great pain. And I think there are significant areas where behavioural science and psychology within, the, within that, that set of sciences can make a very strong contribution. We've set up a public mental health cell here um, to look at the issues, but we've also set up a public reassurance cell, which has got elected members on it to kind of reassure people. Um, we've also got mental health support for staff. Um, we're working on bereavement. So um, the aftermath of this will go on for far longer than the infection. Mm, okay. So a, a lot, you know, the breadth and depth of what you're dealing with are both sort of quite broad and deep. So it's, it's um, I hope you're staying well yourself throughout all of that stuff. I know you're working along a lot of hours at the moment. I wondered if we could end on a, a slightly happier note and, and um, if you could 
talk a little bit about the the love that's being shown to the NHS and and the you know the, the social norming that's starting to form around the clapping of the NHS in, in on Thursdays. What, what's your take on that, Susan, on that whole process and what's going on there? I think that um, it's it's been wonderful. I think people in the communities feel feel great and are kind of meeting neighbours, you know, seeing neighbours that they haven't engaged with. And I think it's it's a really important process. I know people working in the health service who say it does make a difference. Um, however, there's also really quite a lot of anger that those politicians we're seeing on the doorsteps joining in are also those who have consistently voted against pay rises uh, for healthcare staff. So I think um, there's a lot of people saying, look, clapping's all very well, but let's have the PPE, let's have, you know, in due course, um, the the wages to reflect um, the central and absolutely essential, valuable, risky work um, that they and other um, key workers are doing to keep society going. So I think one of the interesting things that's coming out of this it is really showing something about uh, who is essential in our society mm-hmm. and who's less essential. And it's also showing the fault lines of the way that we organise society. So um, my positive going forward is that I hope um, lessons are being learned, not just, um, you know, smallish lessons, but profound big lessons about the way, the nature of the society that, that we live in, the way that power and wealth is distributed, who takes decisions on whose behalf, and that we have a real restructuring, rethinking of society, and we massively reduce the inequalities. Um, you know, an unequal society where everything is run on a just-in-time principle, whether it's supermarkets or the NHS, is too fragile for what we need. Um, so um, a much more equal, well-resourced um, society where we look after each other uh, from the bottom up, but also from the top down. And, and I, there was a really good post um, by Paul Lindley, who um, started and I think still runs um, Ella's Kitchen, which is a like a child food brand uh he's uh put out a post about what should happen post um post all of this stuff and and it was really inspirational because it actually put a lot of mechanics to what could happen after this and and what we shouldn't just do which is just bleed our way back towards normalcy Mm. and let you know the financial institutions that have um organized the way that we, we we live our lives at the moment to sort of just come and reassert themselves. And, and I, I mean, the, the positive of that is that it's shown people, like you say, who is essential and the true value of those people who are going in, you know, to work, to care for other people. I mean, technically putting their families at risk as well by, by going in and doing that, but they, they are... Yeah, yeah but it's, it's not just the NHS. I mean, I... I no, think, absolutely. Um, no, you're right. We, we, the NHS does a great job, um, but there are times when we lionise the NHS... Um, and turn it into a national religion when actually in that process we get a whole load of other people. So the home carers, you know, the, the NHS is doing a really massively important job, but so are other people. The home carers who keep people out of hospital, the care homes who are in the front line dealing with people um, every day who are ill and dying and scared, just as much as our NHS are. That's not to detract from the NHS, but it's to remind us that the bus drivers, the postal workers, 
the the factory workers, the people who stack shelves and do checkouts. Um, if we are going to have equality, then as Susan said, the fault lines of who are really important. Um, you know, people in my street, we've started cleaning our gates and our door handles several times a day so that the delivery people can feel more safe and secure. Uh, and there is something about making the point very strongly that we are all in this together. And when that clap for your carers started, it actually started as a social care thing, not an NHS thing. Um, so we we do need, I think, to bear in mind that our NHS is precious, but so are all the other services that wrap around it that enable the NHS to work efficiently in this. And if it weren't for social care, um, which is every bit as precious, we would be in a much worse situation than we are right now. I, I agree with that. And in, in round where I live, one of the um, things that started is um, people clapping when the people come round to collect our rubbish. Um, you know, because they are absolutely essential too. So it's not yeah. just care. It's it's as, as Jim was saying, so many different parts of society. And I think celebrating and applauding. But at the end of the day, it's not enough to give medals or clap your hands. These people have got to be given stable, secure and well-paid jobs. Absolutely, absolutely. Totally agreed. And I, and I think what we'll do is we'll leave it there because the I want to keep these relatively short um, and I'm, no doubt we'll do another one perhaps next week um, as we sort of progress through this and maybe we can get into a bit more detail about, about some, of that, uh, some of that stuff. But um, I just wanted to thank you again for your time coming on the show and, uh, you know, there's a lot there for people to think about and um, thank you again for everything you're doing as well um, with Jim, with all of the stuff that you're doing at a national and a local level and Susan as well, all the advice that you're giving out and, and making it very understandable for people, um, you know, on, on news shows and whatever else. Um, so we'll be back again in the next week or two, I should imagine, given where this is going and the pace that it's going at. And um, if you've got any questions or comments in the meantime, anyone else you want to see interviewed, please do get in touch. I'm on Twitter at Stu underscore King underscore hh or you can email me at stuartking at busybodies.co.uk once again thanks to jim and susan thank you and bye thank you thanks very much bye